Father, we give you all the glory for how great and amazing you are. I thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your love and your compassion for each of us. And I thank you for your word. God, you've given us your word so we can hear you speak. And so I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive and respond, and that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I got really loud for a moment there, didn't I? I didn't mean to. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. So last time, right? It says last week. I didn't change it. Last time, which was about a month ago, Jesus and his disciples were sailing over the Sea of Galilee when they encountered a storm that Jesus calmed. Now they've arrived at the other side in the city of the Gadarenes, or your Bible may say Gerasenes. Uh, there's a little bit of argument over the spelling, and who cares? Um, but when he got there, Jesus and his followers encountered a demon-possessed man. The city was part of what is known as the Decapolis, a region of ten cities, hence the name, uh, on the eastern shore of Galilee. Get a good Bible map and you can see where these things were at. Now, in verse 26, we meet the demoniac. So he sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, or the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. 
And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And when Jesus, or when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, but he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. So we have the description of this man who was possessed by a legion of demons. Uh, a legion, a Roman legion, was between four and 6,000 men. So did this guy, was he possessed by four to 6,000 demons? Some people suggest that. It is definitely a possibility. Um, it would explain a lot about his supernatural strength and whatnot. Um, the description, right? He was naked. He was living among the tombs. The demon often seized him. He had this ridiculous strength. They would bind him with chains and he would break them. And he was driven by the demons into the wilderness. And then we get this reaction of the demons when they saw Jesus. They fall down before him because the demons are still subject to the king of kings, which is good news. Um, and they say, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. So not only did this reaction show that the demons had to submit to Jesus, they also had to fall down before him because whether they are loyal to him, right? They're not loyal to him. They're demons. Um, though you've rebelled against him, they are still subject to him. When Jesus says, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord, there are literally billions of people on our planet who are going, nah, -uh. but yeah, -huh. they're not going to have a choice when that day comes. It's so much easier to bow now. Second, the demon knew who Jesus was slash is. James 2.19 teaches us that the demons believe in God and they tremble. So they may have some kind of faith or belief, but it is not saving faith. And that's an important distinction because there's a lot of people who say, well, of course I believe in God. What do you mean by that? Well, I believe in God. Okay, which one? I'm being serious. Look at the world we live in and how many things have been turned into gods, right? And we people think it's new. Oh, the sexual revolution was new. No, it wasn't. They were doing that in Greece and they were doing it in Rome and they were doing it long before that. Or, or abortion. They used to sacrifice children or whatever it might be, but pleasure and money and power and nature, and so on and so forth. These are, quote-unquote, right? They're false gods, idols that have been worshipped for a long time. There's nothing new. And so when someone says, I believe in God, I like to get really specific. Usually, I won't be as snarky as to ask which one, but I will ask, okay, you believe in God, but do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, I believe in God. That's not the question I have. 
because it's a big difference, and it's important that we make that distinction. Now, I'm going to take a couple moments. We're going to do a, a minor rabbit trail that has a good starting off point. And we looked at this back when we were in Luke chapter 4, which was almost nine months ago, so I figured I'd throw it out there again. And that is the difference between demon possession and demon oppression, because they are two different things. Demon possession. When we see people being demon-possessed, like this fellow, the word in Greek, and I am just going to butcher it. Is it up there? Oh, it's up there. So you, can, you can see how badly I pronounce it. Demon itsomai. I'm going to take my word for that. Uh, daimonian, and that other word with the E. Right In the Bible, we typically see a person who is demon-possessed. They are controlled by that demon or the demons. And then they display behavior that is in accordance with what is described in our passage today. Right? That doesn't mean they always have supernatural strength. It doesn't mean that they all live in the tombs naked. But you see some of this behavior. A person who's possessed, the demon may seize them. The demon may be able to speak through them, so on and so forth. That's demon possession. There's another phrase in Greek which talks about demonic oppression or influence. And this phrase is eshon daemonion. And it appears in Luke 4. It also appears in Mark 1. And it may indicate more of an influence and an oppression, but not a possession. So I'm going to give you a little bit of explanation and I'm going to do it fairly quickly. While demon possession is alive and well today, God has given us authority, his authority, not our own, over the demonic. Mark 16, 7 is a great place to reference that. I do not fear the demonic. They can annoy us. But we have nothing to fear. They have been overcome. Now, this authority is not mine. I will never approach something demonic and say, I cast you out. I will always ask the Lord to do it. I'm going to tell you why. Because in the book of Jude, we have this interesting blurb that said, when Michael, that said even Michael, when he contended with Satan over the body of Moses, did not speak evil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, I'm pretty sure if Michael and I were to arm wrestle, he would whoop me pretty good. Michael is a lot more powerful than I am. And Michael and Satan are equal. Right? They're both angels. Satan fallen, Michael remained loyal. But Michael didn't look at him and go, I rebuke you. No, the Lord rebuke you. And we, we read, right? you go up to Revelation uh, chapter something, and Michael actually casts Satan out of heaven. So he is a powerful being, and he didn't look at Satan and say, well, me, no. The Lord rebuke you, or I come at you in Jesus' name. It's not me, right? If you ever want to take on a demon by yourself, don't call me. I don't want to be there. It's not going to be pretty. And the Bible gives us a beautiful example of it in the seven sons of Sceva. You guys remember the seven sons of Sceva? They approach a demon-possessed man and they say, we adjure you by the Jesus that Paul preaches to come out of this man. 
And the demon looked at them, and you know, you, you don't usually root for demons, um, but in this specific situation, I thought it was funny. The demons looked at them and said, you know, we know who Jesus is, and we know who Paul is, but who are you? And this one guy, demon-possessed, jumped on these seven guys, stripped them naked, and sent them out of the house, beat up. That's why I don't do it on my own. I don't want to be that guy. But this does lead to the question, can a believer be possessed by a demon? And the answer is no. The Bible teaches us that light and darkness cannot dwell together. 2 Corinthians 6.14 The Bible teaches us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6.19 The idea that the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us would allow a demon to take possession of what Jesus has purchased is wrong. We cannot be possessed as followers of Christ. However, we do know we are part of a spiritual war. And as part of our spiritual war, our wrestling is not with flesh and blood, but in the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us of that. And because of this, even though a believer cannot be demon-possessed, a believer can be harassed or influenced by the lies and attacks of our very real enemy. And this brings us back to the phrase... Echon demonium. A believer cannot be possessed, demon itzomai or demonian as However, a believer can be influenced by the enemy. This influence um, can come in the form of a lie. This influence can come in the form of a temptation. This influence can come in just trying to distract us from the good things of God. Um, this influence can come in a lot of ways. This influence, if we give in to it, um, can increase through our disobedience, through our, our refusal to confess and deal with sin in our lives, and by us believing the lies and deceptions of the enemy. But that's, but, and that's a big but, when we belong to Christ, no demon can ever take possession of us. It doesn't change that we're in a war. And it doesn't change that we have a real enemy who does not like us. Right? He doesn't want us to succeed. He doesn't want us to do well. He doesn't want us to pray. Right? That The thing we started in Sunday school is a prayer practice. It's to help all of us learn to pray better, really, to get closer to God through prayer. Do you think that the enemy wants us to get closer to God through prayer? Why is it so easy to be distracted the moment you open your Bible? Do you think he wants us listening to his word? course not. A couple quick comments about a couple of myths, and then we're going to move forward. The first one, the demonic and mental illness. While demonic influence can aggravate mental illness, and those who are demon-possessed will display symptoms and behaviors similar to some mental illnesses, there is no evidence in scripture that all or any mental illness is caused by the demonic or some other spiritual issue. Just like cancer or heart disease is not caused by a spiritual issue, we cannot blame the devil for mental illness, and we won't. In the broad sense, living in a fallen, sinful world certainly contributes to mental illness, as can attacks from our enemy. He loves it when I am struggling to come after me. And he's much better at it, right? If I'm, 
If I'm doing well, my relationships are going well, I'm, I'm in the word, I'm in prayer, I'm not feeling particularly anxious or depressed, well, he's got a hard time dealing with me. But I have a bad day, I spiral. Oh, it becomes a playground for him. That doesn't mean he causes it. He just uses it against us. But mental illness is not the devil. Mental illness is not demonic. Spiritual issues, unrepented sin can contribute to our struggles. But mental illness, like any other illness, is not to be blamed on the demonic. And I think, unfortunately, there are too many churches, too many pastors, too many Christians in general who have put this horrible stigma on mental illness. I've actually had people say to me, well, you're a Christian, how could you be depressed? I've always responded in such a positive and godly way. Thank you that you all know me well enough to know that was a joke. I have never cussed at anybody for saying that to me, I promise. Because that's about the cruelest thing you can say to a person who's struggling. Right? Well, this is your fault. If you were just more spiritual, you'd be fine. No. I'm going to tell you guys something that I've never told you. Which is pretty rare for me, right? Um, but I've been on an antidepressant for the last two years. And have, there's only a couple people that, I, that know in, in this room. I haven't told a lot of people about it. And it's not because I'm ashamed of it. It's just because well, you don't even need to know what prescriptions I take. Um, <laughs> uh, and it is, it's made a really big difference in my life. But I have shared that with, with a couple, very, very few people, and gotten some really nasty reactions about it. Aren't you a Christian? Aren't you a pastor? Why would you take that? Because I don't want to die? Not yet. And not until God's timing. Because I don't want to spend my life barely functioning. So I did something about it. By God's grace, don't get me wrong, I prayed about it. Talked to my wife about it. Talked to the doctor about it. Was very, very cautious. Um, but it worked. And the beautiful thing about that is it means that my depression is at least partially chemically caused in my brain. Otherwise, the medication wouldn't have worked. And that was the experiment. Um, now, I say that to you all, not because um, I needed you to know, but you know me. Do you guys really think I'm an unspiritual person? You guys think I don't want to follow Christ? I make mistakes and I don't do it perfectly. But I love Jesus with all my heart and I struggle with mental illness. And you know what? That's okay. And the reason I do it is because that stigma needs to go away. It needs to go away in our lives. It needs to go away in our hearts. It needs to go away in the church. We need to stop looking at people who are struggling with mental illness and going, well, there's you know, obviously something wrong with them. Well, yeah, there's something wrong with them. They're struggling with mental illness. But that is not any worse than anything else. And what they need, what I need, is the same love and compassion that we would give to somebody who came to our church and said, I've been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. Right? We love you. 
and we want to care for you and we want to support you and encourage you or you know how many people would you would you hear they got in a car accident and they broke both their legs wow sounds like a spiritual issue well maybe you shouldn't have closed your eyes while you were praying and driving okay maybe it's a spiritual issue but you get the point right we wouldn't do that to somebody uh, I've known several people who have had a heart. Gosh, this I got way. This wasn't supposed to be this long. Um, I, I've talked to multiple people who have had uh, heart issues, heart attacks, heart failure. I've never once looked at them and go, "Man, you just should have prayed more, and you wouldn't be having this issue." It's like blaming the devil because I'm fat. Okay, maybe the devil invented Reese's peanut butter cups. I don't know, but I'm still going to eat them because man, they're good. The point I'm getting at, which I've made like 12 times already, is we, as followers of Christ, have to remove that stigma. Because as much as it's talked about in the world, and as much as it's dealt with, and, and as much as you see you know, uh, Mental Health Awareness Month every April, and, and all of these various things, people are still afraid to talk about it. It is the most under treated condition in the world. That's incredible to think about. And the reason is people are afraid. I'm not afraid for you to know what's wrong with me. If you spend any time with me, it's pretty obvious. But we can do that together as a church. That when people think of us, right, as part of the reason we started CR, I love all the things that CR deals with, but one of the things CR does is helps to support people who are struggling with things like depression or anxiety or, or other uh, mental struggles. But it's not the demon's fault. That was the point. <laughs> Number two, we should not have an unhealthy obsession with demonic. Too many people do. Some people look for the devil in everything. They go around hoping to find some person that they can cast a demon out of. I have met three times I've encountered people who are demon-possessed. That was three times too many. I don't want to do it. Right? I, it, it's not fun. It's not pretty. It's not glamorous. It is It's very difficult. And gratefully, not one time was I ever alone. Right? I, there were multiple people there. Um, so I'm not telling you to form a squad of demon casting out, you know, Ghostbusters. or No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, I'm just saying, if you suspect that, don't go alone. Um, C.S. Lewis said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, that's the human race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. They're real and they hate you, right? Don't disbelieve. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Yes, we have a real enemy, and we, but we should keep our focus on God. And when we do that, he will deal with our enemy. Verse 30. I promise the rest won't take that long. I just lied in church. Verse 30. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because the demons were many. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now there was a herd of swine that was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. 
Then the demons went out of the man, entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. So upon discovering how many demons possessed this man, the demons begged Jesus that he would not send them into the abyss. The word there is really bottomless pit, and we see this bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 9. It's described, and we meet in this bottomless pit, a fallen angel um, who is literally the king over evil, and in Hebrew his name is Abaddon, which means destruction, and in Greek his name is Apollyon, right? So this bottomless pit exists, and apparently even these demons were afraid to go there because they knew who was waiting, right? They don't want to talk to Abaddon, right? We, we're going to root him on, but we don't want to, you know, hang out with him, um, in Revelation chapter 11 and in Revelation 17, the beast, the Antichrist, ascends out of the bottomless pit. In Revelation 20, Satan is cast back into it for the millennial reign of Christ, right? That's a lot of word about the bottomless pit. But this is not just some random place, right? They weren't just saying, oh, Jesus, don't send us into the big hole. No, this is a place that scripture describes for us, and it's not pleasant. Um... Now he allows them to enter the herd, and then the herd runs into the sea and drowns. This leaves me with two questions, two powerful questions. Number one, why did Jesus allow them to go into the swine and not cast them into the torment of the abyss? I don't know. That's my scholarly answer. One guess, and this is the best guess I've heard, is that... Um, the Jewish people were not allowed to eat pork, and these Jewish people were raising pork probably in order to sell that meat to Romans. And so perhaps Jesus was, you know, giving them a consequence for their uh, disobedience to it's Leviticus chapter 11. That's the only guess I've heard, but I don't necessarily think that's the best reason. Um, I don't know. Number two, and this one actually bothers me, but I, I can't do anything about it. What happened to the demons afterwards, right? They didn't die when the, when the pigs drowned, right? What happened to them? I don't know. They're probably not here, but I don't know where, what happened. I, I find that interesting, and it just goes back to, you know what? God can know things we don't know. Um, verse 34 and 39 is the spot of this passage that is so cool. And also a little sad. Verse 34. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude, the surrounding region of the Gadarenes, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. So the owners of the herd, they run into town, they tell everybody what happened. Everybody comes back out, and they see the guy who lived among the tombs naked. They see the guy whom they have tried to chain but he broke the chains. They see the guy who has been tormented, thrown down, seized, who has strange voices coming out of his mouth. They see this guy clothed, 
and sitting at the feet of Jesus and in his right mind. It literally means a sober or sound mind. And when they see that, they were taken with great fear. I really like the Greek. It's megas phobos. Big scared. Right? Great fear. Exceedingly great fear or terror. And they want Jesus to leave. Now, when I see a person clothed in their right mind, maybe sitting at the feet of Jesus, sitting at the feet of a teacher, or just sitting in a restaurant, my first reaction is not fear. I see a naked guy. I'm already afraid. I tell him a guy. I don't want to see naked guys. Right? I'm already afraid. And, and then he breaks the handcuffs. Strange voices come out of his head. And, and he's living in the cemetery. Right? If I'm here in my office, I see a naked guy running around the cemetery. I'm not going to go say hi. I'm going to call the police. They weren't afraid of that. Clothed in his right mind, seated at the feet of Jesus, that is what they were afraid of. And so the question I wrote down, why is it that when we are living in sin, following the world, living for the devil, that the world around us can accept that? That's okay. But when God steps in and he makes us right before him, the world cannot stand it. I mean, I think the easiest answer is what Jesus said, that people do not like coming to the light because they prefer their sin and they don't want their sin to be exposed, so they stay in the darkness. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 he describes it in a pretty incredible way. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign or speak evil of you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I don't know how many of you experienced this, but I did. In a pretty astounding way when I got saved. Uh, I had a very good friend of mine. You've heard this. Well, most of you have heard this. There's some folks who haven't heard this story, so I'm going to tell it again. Very good friend of mine. He was my best friend. Uh, really in high school. Um, his name was also Jason, so we called him by his last name, which I'm not going to say. Um, and we were great, great, great friends. When, when Leah and I ran away from our families to get married in Vegas, and if you haven't heard that story, that one's fun. Um, 
we, he was the only person we took with us because he was my friend. And then I tried to share the gospel with him after I got saved. And he wouldn't listen. And we hung out a couple times. Or he, he was like, hey, you want to go to the strip club? No. You were at my wedding. Right? Not that it was right beforehand, but you were there. I don't, I don't want to go to the strip club. What, what's wrong with you? I don't want to see a bunch of strange naked women. Maybe I do a little. But no, it's wrong and I'm not going to do it. Because I love my wife. Right? Well, he thought that was real. He just couldn't handle it. And I quit smoking. Boy, you would have thought the world ended then. And after a couple months, he stopped talking to me. And then he stopped calling me. He stopped responding to my calls. And then I found out he got married and didn't invite us. Broke my heart. It really broke my heart. He was not the only one. I had family that thought it was odd. I remember my dad, when I first got saved, I put on my message. Uh, our, you guys remember answering machines? Right? Little tapes, mechanical things that were horrible. Voicemail, so much better. Um, voicemail, you can erase without listening to it. Now, I would never do that to any of you. But I would get, um, I, I put a scripture on my answering machine. And oh, I remember my dad gave me a lecture about how I was overdoing it and, and how I was, you know, I bet your pastor doesn't have a message, a scripture on his answering machine. I'm like, yeah, you should be as good as me. I was a bit prideful back then. Um, and we had all of these just constant discussions and it got to the point where my dad stopped talking to me. My dad didn't talk to me for almost 10 years. Because I was a Christian, and then I told him I wanted to go into ministry. So this happens. And I think that was the problem with these guys. right? These people come out from the town, and they see the guy, right? They knew him when he was demon-possessed. They knew him when he was running around naked. They were fine with that. But wait a second. Now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now he's wearing clothes. We don't like this. right? That's why the world is okay with us when we lie like they do. Because they want to lie, so if we lie, then it's okay for them to lie. The world is okay when a person's living in sexual immorality because they want to live in sexual immorality. They're okay if you steal something because, well, they want to be dishonest or whatever it might be. But the moment it happens, oh, now you're being judgmental. I'm not being judgmental. I don't judge the world. And you want to know why? Because I know what it's like to be sexually immoral. I've done it. I know what it's like to lie, and so on, and so forth. So I don't look at the world, because the only difference between them and me is the grace of God. And I deserve the same punishment that everybody else does. I just came to the one who could save me from it. But when they look at me, or they look at you, well, they don't like it, because they're convicted. Because the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us reaches out to them, and says, you could have this. Joy, peace, salvation, hope, purpose. You could have it. But then I'd have to stop this. Yeah, you would. And they don't want to do it. Verse 38. 
Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Isn't that fun? Go tell everybody what God did for you. And he went and told everybody what Jesus did for him. But people say, well, the Bible never claims that Jesus is God. Yes, it does. A lot of times. So Jesus agrees to leave. And the man begs Jesus to be with him. This word, to be with him, it's similar to the word disciple that we, we talked about, because we're disciples, right? It means to be his companion, to be in association with, or to be in union with. He wants to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, no. Instead, I have a mission for you. Go home, tell everybody the great things God has done for you. And so the man went home, and he didn't just proclaim to his family, but to the whole city what Jesus had done for him. And Jesus went back to the other side, where there were multitudes waiting for him that we will look at next week. Now, a couple things. There is no accidental language in the Bible. There's nothing in Scripture that God did not put there on purpose for a reason. When Jesus tells the man to go back and proclaim what God had done for him, and the man went and told what Jesus had done for him, this is clearly teaching us that Jesus is, in fact, God. Right? There are no accidents. And then the man did his job well. Evangelism isn't really all that complicated. It can be scary, right? And you people, oh, you, you, have, you know what? If, if God leads me to talk to a stranger about the gospel, my heart starts pounding. My mouth gets a little dry. I start speaking fast. Well, yeah, but you do this for a living. But yeah, I'm also talking to a person I don't know about the most important thing they will ever hear in their entire lives. It makes me a little nervous. I can't help it. Jesus told the man, just go tell people what God has done. When Jesus healed the blind man in John chapter 9, and there's this, I love John chapter 9, there's this whole section of him and the Pharisees and back and forth, and um, they get to the place where they, basically, it seems to me like they're yelling at the guy, and they say, give glory to God! This man's a sinner. And he goes, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But in verse 25, he says, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. As we've studied God's word, it's important for us to study and understand it. But you don't have to be a pastor, evangelist, Bible teacher, scholar, uh, or anything of the sort to share the gospel. Do you want to know what you need to share the gospel? Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. That's what you need. Now, eventually, if you're going to share the gospel, you've got to tell them that he died and rose again, right? Because that's important. Um, but, but you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be able to quote the book of John to somebody to share the gospel. You want to know why I believe this? Let me tell you what he's done for me. Conclusion. You didn't think I was going to make it. In Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, we read this. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, oops, Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Right? Even in the early church, what were the apostles doing? They were simply telling people, what they had seen and heard. 
1 John 1, 1 through 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Same thing. What did John tell his listeners in his first epistle? All we're doing is telling you what we saw and what we heard. And you want to know why we want to tell you that? So that you can have fellowship with us as we have fellowship with the Father through the Son. That's what we want. That's gorgeous. I thought it died for a second. So this is our mission, my very dear brothers and sisters. Did Jesus go there to show his power over the demons? I don't think so. Did he go there to impress people with his authority? I don't think so. No, he went there like a shepherd, leaving the 99 to save the one. Luke 15, 4. Now he knew there was someone, like we said, Matthew's gospel said there were two someones. Did I mention that? Matthew's gospel said there's two someones, but we focus on the one guy. But he knew there was someone there who needed him. So he left the multitude on the other side. He literally left, not the 99, but the thousands. And he went and he really only ministered, right? There were two guys who were possessed, but it would appear that this is the guy who really received his ministry. Jesus had another path for this man to follow. He was still following Jesus, right? He wanted to follow Jesus. But he said, go and proclaim the good news of what he had done. This man was set free so he could proclaim that same freedom to others. We are no different. We are set free so we can proclaim that freedom to others. When, Peter, he, Peter, uh, when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, the first thing she did was got up and served. We are healed so we can serve. We are set free so we can proclaim that freedom to others. Jesus left the 99 to find the one. And it doesn't matter how many times I read about it, I'm always affected by the one simple thought. He did it for me. I was the one. And he left the 99 for me. And he left the 99 for you. And I'll tell you what, in those moments when we, we run away, those moments when we want to be away from the church or away from the flock or we're, we're, we feel separated from God or we feel um, lonely or isolated or whatever it might be, he will leave the 99 and come get you. Every single time. But that leads to our mission. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I think there's a problem with that microphone. Let me turn the other one on. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be, no, who, him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm going to end with two simple questions. First, are you a new creation in Christ? The only way for this to happen is to respond to the gospel and receive the free gift of salvation and forgiveness offered to you through the death and resurrection of Christ. And if there's anybody listening, anybody online, if you're the one, know that the shepherd is coming for you. And when he gets there, follow him home. Two, for those of us who are new creations in Christ, in what ways are we being ambassadors and engaging in the ministry of reconciliation? Isn't that a fun question? That can be a convicting question, and I understand that. But here's the thing, right? You don't have to do what I do to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. And you don't have to do what the person sitting next to you does to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. God has created us differently. He has gifted us differently. He's given us different personalities. He's given us different spheres of influence. So you don't have to do it the way I do it. Because I guarantee I'm not going to do it the way you do it. We're different, and that's okay. But each of us, as a follower of Christ, is called to take part as ambassadors in that ministry of reconciliation. And if you're not exactly sure what you are doing or what you could be doing, ask God. He'll show you, and he'll be compassionate and loving. You might get a mild rebuke if he's told you to do something that you haven't done. But that's a different story. The point is, we live in a world filled with the one. Filled with them. When you look at, I've been doing a lot of research, actually, for my message on Wednesday about stuff like this. Um, but when you look at the pandemic that currently exists, it's not COVID. Do you want to know what it is? Loneliness. Loneliness is the greatest threat to mental health in our society at the moment. Isn't that crazy? We're in a room full of people. Anybody feel lonely? Don't answer that. We shouldn't, but we do. You want to hear more about that? I'm going to talk about it on Wednesday. But that's beside the point. Um, right? And there's a lot of ones out there. And they might be part of big social groups. They might be really connected at their jobs. They might be really connected in their family. They might even be really connected in the church. But they're still the one. They're still lonely. And Jesus wants to go get them. Guess who he wants to send? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we give you all the glory for the work you did in that man's life. One day... When we're spending eternity with you, we may get to ask him what that day was like and what the days after were like. 
But until then, Lord, we thank you for your word that you teach us, that you would leave the 99 to find the one, that you would minister to the person that the rest of society has forgotten about, and that you would heal them and make them whole, to draw them to yourself, and then to draw others to yourself with them. We thank you, Father, for your great love and grace. We thank you for the truth of your word. Help us to be that love and light in the world around us. All for your glory, in Jesus' name.